Let's do it. John chapter 18 is where we're headed today. John chapter 18. If you got a Bible with you, get it out, turn it on. If you don't normally follow along in your Bible, I'd love for you to do so today because we're going to look at a long story and I want you to be able to track with us. So you can get out your phone. If you have a Bible app, great. If not, you can go to just like Bible.com and look for the passage. You'll find it there. John chapter 18. Do you know someone who is always called? Do you have someone in your life who's just sort of this steady, calming influence? No matter what happens, it just seems like they don't get flustered. They, they keep their composure. Do you know someone like that? A parent, a grandparent? Maybe your boss is like that. Everything's going crazy at work, and you go into her office, and she's just like, hey, we've got this. Don't, don't even worry about it. Do you know someone like that? Maybe you're like that. I wish I was a little more like that. I'm a little, ah, you know, I get a little flustered. Kind of easy. I want to show you something today about Jesus. Maybe it'll be new to you. Maybe it'll just be review. But I want to show you that when the heat is on him, Jesus is totally under control. No matter what happens, Jesus seems to be able to stay composed. He seems to be able to just be steady and, and even keel. And that's going to be tested in the last few hours of his life, which is what we're looking at. We're in the sermon series called Fighting Words, and we're looking at the last couple days of Jesus's life. And I want to jump right into the Bible today. I want the story to just speak for itself. But what I want you to see, what I want you to feel for yourself as we go through the story is how steady Jesus remains. When it feels like the whole world is crashing down on him and everything that Jesus is and everything that he says seems to be falling apart, somehow Jesus just remains totally calm, totally steady. So John chapter 18 is where we're gonna be. Last week we saw Jesus arrested. We're gonna pick up the story at kind of the beginning of the trial of Jesus today. Here we go, watch, listen, Feel how composed Jesus is. Verse 19. It says, Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I've spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I've always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. Is that the way you answer the high priest? He demanded. Jesus replied, if I said something wrong, tell me, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why'd you strike me? Then Annas sent him, that's Jesus, bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Here's the scene. Earlier in the evening, Jesus was having dinner with some of his friends. He and his disciples hanging out, having a meal. He says, let's go for a walk. Let's just go out for an evening stroll. And so they do. They leave the city. They go out to where it's calm and peaceful. They're in a garden, a, a vineyard, where they can have time just to be together and to pray. And while they're there, their prayer time gets interrupted because a mob shows up. A mob of Jewish officials and Roman soldiers show up. And Jesus comes out of the garden and he says, what do you need? Who are you looking for? And they said, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And he goes, that's, that's me. I'm him. He doesn't put up a fight. And calmly and peacefully, he goes with them. They arrest him. They take him with them. 
This is a couple hours later now. It's going on into the night, and Jesus is being questioned by some of the priests. They're standing outside, likely standing outside in this, in this courtyard. It's the middle of the night. It's cold. Jesus has got to be tired by now. It's been a stressful few hours. And so they start to ask him these questions. And they go, tell us about the things that you've taught. What are these things that you're saying that we keep hearing about? And Jesus calmly goes, wait, wait, wait a minute. You've heard me before. Like you, you guys know me. You've seen me around town. I've come to your temples, your synagogues to teach. Why are you acting like this? I haven't done anything in secret. Like everybody's heard me. Look at my YouTube account. Like it's out there. There's no secrets here. Somewhere along the way, though Jesus is being calm and steady, somewhere along the way, one of the officials doesn't like his attitude, doesn't like his tone, so he slaps him. Jesus, in that moment, adrenaline surges, right? Muscles start to twitch a little bit. And yet, Jesus remains calm. He just stays totally even keel, steady. Matthew's gospel tells us that people are spitting on him. Gross. Imagine people spitting on him. People hitting him, mocking him. He's handcuffed. He can't defend himself. By now, there's probably blood coming out of Jesus' body. And you know a crowd likes blood, right? So people are starting to get fired up. People are starting to, to cheer. And yet Jesus remains totally calm, totally able to control himself, able to suppress the adrenaline rush, able to fight back the urge to rip off the chain. Keep going, jump down to verse 28. We find out the Jewish leaders have no real charges against him. They just don't like him. So they take him to the Romans. Verse 28 says, the Jewish leaders take Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the governor. By now it was early morning and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. Stop here for a minute. Let me, let me explain what's going on here. And let me just tell you right now, this is absolutely what I hate about religion. This right now, what's going on is, in a nutshell, this is religion. This day is supposed to be a special day. It's the holiest day for the Jews. People flock to Jerusalem on this day to worship. In fact, Jesus would have been there to celebrate also. It's this festival called Passover. And they come, and the, the, the purpose of this day is that they're going to celebrate everything that God has done. They're going to worship God for all that he has done over the years for the people of Israel. And so you have these Jewish leaders, and they are wanting to have this party. They're wanting to have this celebration, but they also want to take care of this Jesus guy. So they go to Pilate's house, to the governor's house. But they refuse to go inside because they believe they have these laws that if they go inside a non-Jewish person, a Gentile's house, that they will become impure, that they'll be unclean and they won't be able to go to the party. And it's so upside down because on this very day, they'll kill an innocent man. They'll watch him be tortured and killed and yet, they're afraid to go into someone's house because they might get a little dirty. They're afraid to be seen with the riffraff. This is religion. This is religion where we go, there's, there's these laws, there's these rules, and as long as you follow these rules, you're good. 
you're clean. No matter what's going on in your heart, as long as you follow the laws, you're fine. That's religion, and that's what's going on here. They're going to kill Jesus on this day, but all they care about is their image. All they care about is following their laws, even though their hearts are evil and corrupt. It's religion. It's what I hate. Jesus hated it. It's what he fought against when he was on earth. They take him to the Roman leaders. Their big hope is that they'll deal with him. This Jesus guy, we don't like him. Will you do something about him? Verse 29 says, so Pilate came out of his house to them and he asked, what charges are you bringing against this man? The Jewish leaders, they reply, if he were not a criminal, we would not have handed him over to you. And basically nothing, right? We got nothing. We've got no charges. We just don't like the guy. Get him out of our sight. Do something with this guy. Pilate responds, verse 31, and he says, take him yourselves. Judge him by your own law. They object and they say, we have no right to execute anyone. Interesting how they jump to execution, isn't it? We don't have charges. We haven't had a trial. And they're just immediately going to execution, which tells you what? They just want the guy dead. Just get rid of this guy. Kill this guy for us because we don't like him. Verse 32 says that this took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death that he was going to die. This is worth talking about for a minute. Jesus, over the last few years, he had predicted his death. He had told his disciples that he was going to die, but he didn't just say that he was going to die. He told everybody how he was going to die. He called his shot. John records it throughout his gospel, chapter 3, chapter 8, chapter 12. He continues to say that Jesus told them that he was going to die, that he was going to be lifted up. He was describing crucifixion. He was, gonna, he was saying that he was going to be crucified. But here's the problem. He's in Jewish custody. If the Jews kill him, if the Jews execute Jesus, they don't crucify people. The Jews have a different way of executing people. If you break their laws and they put you to death, the Jews stone people. They literally throw stones at your head until you die. I mean, pretty mean, pretty gross, but that's what happens. They don't crucify people. So they take Jesus to the Roman leaders in hopes that they'll kill him. And the irony of this, in God's sense of humor, the irony of what's going on here is the, the Jewish leaders are actually causing what Jesus said would happen. They're causing it to happen. They're taking him to the Romans and it's making what Jesus said come true. They're fulfilling the words of Christ in their actions. He has to be crucified. He said that he would be crucified, which means it's got to be the Romans that take his life. Verse 33, Pilate went back inside the palace after talking with the Jewish leaders. He goes back inside the palace. He summoned Jesus and he asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Luke's gospel says that the, the, the Jewish leaders told Pilate that that was the crime, that Jesus was claiming to be a king. Jesus responds, Pilate, is that your idea? Or did others talk to you about me? And we have this part right here that tension is happening. The boiling point, we're, we're, we're getting near that boiling point right here. This is fighting words. Pilate is not going to like Jesus' answer. Pilate is a powerful man. He asks him a straightforward question. He expects a straightforward answer. He doesn't like what Jesus says, so he gets right up in his face. 
Verse 35, with disdain in his voice, Pilate says, am I a Jew with incredible condescension? The Romans thought they were higher, more important than everybody else. He says, what am I, a Jew? Your own people, your chief priests are the ones who handed you over to me. What is it that you've done? Watch Jesus now, listen to his words, totally under control. Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. We'll come back to that. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, Pilate said. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into this world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Pilate dismissively says, what is truth? With this, he went out again to the Jews gathered there, and he said, I find no basis for a charge against him. Luke's gospel tells us that while Pilate is out talking to the Jewish leaders, the soldiers are beating up Jesus in the back. They're, they're mocking him, humiliating him. Pilate says to the, to the Jews, but it's your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of Passover. So do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. And Barabbas was someone who had taken part in an uprising. Do you see how steady Jesus is? People have spit in his face. I mean, gross, right? They've mocked him. Soldiers take him in the back room and they twist together a, a crown of thorns and they hammer it into his head so it breaks the skin and blood is trailing down his face. He's handcuffed. He's been slapped. Do you see how steady he is? Would you be that steady? I wouldn't, right? If I'm Jesus and I have the power that Jesus has, I'm pulling off the, the handcuffs and the, 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 the binds around my feet. I'm ripping all that stuff off. I'm throwing haymakers like th the fight is on. Jesus, cool as a cucumber, totally steady. And when I read this story, there's part of me. It's like, man, let's go, Jesus. Like, I want him to light it up because I don't like bullies, right? And Pilate's a bully. And these Jewish leaders are bullies. And the soldiers that would spit on and beat up a handcuffed man. They're bullies. And we like an underdog story, right? There's nothing better than seeing a bully get punched in the mouth. So let's go, Jesus, come on. There's a part of me that when I read this story, I'm like, Jesus, a wedgie, throw him in a trash can. Let's go, take care of these guys. Do you think there's a part of Jesus that wanted to fight back? Do you think there's a part of Jesus that wants to go, hey, come here. Do you know who I am? Do you think there's a part of him that wants to rip off his chains? I mean, he's a man, he's a human being. Adrenaline is pumping through his veins. His muscles are twitching, fight or flight is kicking in. His hands are clenched in fists. He's ready to go, just wanting to survive. Of course there's a part of him that wants to fight back. And he has to make a decision in that moment. Is he gonna act that out? Is he gonna live by his instincts, by his flesh? 
Or is he going to be led by the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is self-control and patience and peace and gentleness. I mean, play it out for a second. Let's say Jesus fights back. Let's just say for a second, sort of choose your own adventure here. Let's say that Jesus fights back. Let's say that when that official slaps him, Jesus just hits him back. I mean, he's justified, right? But if Jesus did that, what do we do with that whole thing where Jesus says, if someone slaps you, turn and give them the other cheek? If Jesus fights back, What do we do with all that stuff he said about love your enemies and pray for them? I mean, we'd have to say Jesus can't even practice what he preaches. He doesn't do what he told us to do. If Jesus fights, what do we do with all the stuff that he says about generosity and sacrifice and forgiveness? We could then easily go, well, Jesus, you can't forgive. Why should we? If Jesus fights back, he's not who he says he is. If Jesus fights back, what do we do with the prophecy about the Messiah going to the cross quietly like a lamb led to slaughter? If Jesus fights back in this moment, Jesus is a liar. He's not who he says he is. He has every right to fight back. He has the power to fight back. Jesus could rip off the chains. He could call down angels, right? At any moment, he doesn't even have to fight. He could go, hey, disciples, let's go, boys. Do your thing. Take care of this. He absolutely has the power to do that. But then what? I mean, keep going. Go to the logical conclusion. He wipes out the Jewish leaders. He takes down the Roman government. He sets up a government of his own. Awesome, great. Jesus Jesus is in charge, fine. But if he does that, he hasn't accomplished the very thing that he came to accomplish. Because what about my sin? What about your sin? If Jesus fights back, then Jesus doesn't go to the cross. But he has to go to the cross. If Jesus fights back and they don't kill him, he can't go in the tomb and he can't come back to life. Which means you and I have no hope. We have no forgiveness of our sins. We have no promise of eternal life with God. The reality is that Jesus has to just sit there and take it. And it's totally unfair. And if that was me, I'm I'm crying. I'm breaking down. I'm fighting back. I'm responding. I'm going, I don't deserve this. The very people that he's going to die for are the people who are mocking him. They're spitting on him as they walk by. Those are the people that Jesus is dying for. It's totally unfair. And yet Jesus knows what he has to do. He knows what he came to do. He has to go to the cross. He has to die and he has to rise again. And so through it all, look how steady he is. It's not fair. In the face of beating, in the face of humiliation, in the face of certain death, he remains totally composed. So let me ask you a question. Knowing that, if Jesus is this steady, when all this is going on, when his life is being threatened, he's being beaten, he's being tortured, he's being mocked, if he can remain that composed, do you think there's anything 
that could happen in your life that would throw Jesus off his game? I mean, do you think there's anything that could go on in your life, any problem that you could have, any incident that could occur, do you think there's anything that could happen where you bring it to Jesus and he goes, oh, crud, what are we going to do now? No way, right? He endures hours of humiliation and torture and death. And he remains steady. Jesus is totally under control through the whole thing. He's totally under control all the time. Never surprised, never overwhelmed, totally even keel, totally under control, never loses his composure, never freaks out. Do you see that? Do you? I mean, I need you to see that. I need you to see how steady Jesus really is. Because if he's going to say things like, come to me all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Well, if we look at him and he can't even handle his own business, how is he going to handle yours and mine? If he can't even handle his own pain, if he can't handle his own stress, how will he handle yours and mine? I need you to see how steady he is. When everything is falling apart, when his life is threatened, when everything is totally out of control, even keel, never freaks out, never overwhelmed. I need you to see that. I need you to see who Jesus is. And I hope you see that. I hope you see how steady he is. I want to switch gears for just a minute because I want to look at one more thing, something that, that, that Jesus says. Because maybe, maybe he fights back just a little bit, but it's in the words that he speaks. And again, he doesn't lash out. He doesn't freak out. He's still calm and steady. But a couple of the words that he speaks, they're going to cause, they're going to stir it up a little bit. Remember, he said, uh, Pilate says to him, oh, so you're a king, huh? Listen to Jesus, how he responds. Still calm, still cool. Verse 36, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is from another place. He's not saying I'm a king from another country. You've just never heard of me. He's not saying I, I, I'm going to go set up a land somewhere else on the other side of the world. He's describing something that is from a completely different realm. He's describing something, a kingdom that, is from a, that exists on a platform that we don't even understand that is beyond anything of this world. And this is offensive because the man that he's speaking to, Pilate, is governor in Rome. And Rome at the time is the biggest and meanest and baddest empire that you could possibly imagine. No one was above Rome. And so Jesus, when Pilate says, you're a king, huh? And Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom transcends this world. What Jesus is really saying is like, so Pilate is like, oh, Pilate, your kingdom is so cute. And it's like he pats him on the head. It's so cute. It's so cozy. Your little kingdom. It's like when someone says your house is, it's so cozy here. They mean it's tiny, right? Like it's so cozy. <laughs> he goes, Pilate, I love what you've done with the place. It's so cute. My kingdom is from a different realm. My kingdom transcends this world. 
the Old Testament, there's a lot of prophecy that looks forward to God's kingdom. Just write in your notes, and, and you can look this up later, Daniel 7, 14. Go back and read this this week. Daniel 7, 14 says, His dominion is an everlasting dominion. It will not pass away. His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. It's so much more than a physical kingdom or empire on earth. They thought Rome was so big that it could never fall. It was so powerful. And Jesus is like, my kingdom transcends anything that you can possibly imagine. It's bigger even than this world, my kingdom. It's bigger than time and space. It's bigger than landmass. It's bigger than wealth. It's bigger than armies. It's bigger than politics. It transcends all of that. It's completely out of this world. And on top of that, it cannot be destroyed. Jesus' kingdom is a spiritual and everlasting kingdom. It's bigger. It's more powerful than anything that we could imagine. It can't be taken down. It can't be disrupted or destroyed. Slow down for a minute. Get this, because I think if we can understand that Jesus is so steady, that he never loses his composure, he never lashes out, he's, he's never stressed, he's never overwhelmed. If you can understand that and we can partner that with this idea that he is building an everlasting spiritual kingdom. And look, I know that it sounds sort of philosophical, it's sort of ethereal, kind of like out there, right? Just track with me for a minute though. If we can understand how steady Jesus is, and that he's building a kingdom that is bigger, that transcends anything that we could imagine in this world, if we can put those two together, I think it's actually super helpful and super practical for us. Let me, let me show you what I mean. So think about this idea of physical or, or spiritual. So the stuff that we think about most, is it more spiritual or is it more Physical, probably more physical, right? Because we, we live in a physical, tangible world. So the things that we pray about, the things that we get stressed out, that we get anxious about, the things that we want most are most often physical. Here, here's what I mean, though. Here's where physical is different than spiritual. So you go, God, I, I want a new job. I need a new job, God. okay. Can God give you a new job? Sure. Will God give you a new job? Maybe. Maybe he'll line up the perfect thing for you. Has God promised to give you a new job? I'm not sure. I'm not sure that he has. Or let's say that you have a, a sick family member or a friend. And you go, God, will you heal this person? Can God heal that person? Yeah. Will God heal that person? Maybe. Maybe he will, either by medicine or by miracle. He might heal that person. Has God promised to heal, to physically heal every sick person in this life? No, I'm not sure that he has. Say you want to start a family. You want to get married. You want to have kids. But you go to the doctor. The doctor says, I'm sorry, you're not going to have kids. And so you beg God, God, give me the family that I want. Give me children, God, please. Can God do that? Yeah. 
Will God do that? Will he miraculously give you children? Maybe. Has he promised that he will do that? Give you the perfect family exactly the way you would draw it up? No, I'm not sure he has. See, we exist in a, in a physical world, and so most of the stuff that we think about concerns this world. And Jesus says that my kingdom is not of this world. He's not saying that that stuff doesn't matter. Of course, Jesus cares about our family and our jobs and all our friends and all that stuff, of course. But what he's saying is what I offer is better than anything you could imagine in this world. And so in those scenarios, does God promise to give you a new job? No, I, I'm not sure that he does. But does he promise that if you'll ask him, he'll give you peace and joy and strength to do your current job? Yeah, I think so. Does God promise to heal everyone physically in this life? No, I'm not sure that he does. But he does promise that if you'll ask him, he'll be there with you. He'll hold your hand and walk with you as you go through that journey. Does he promise to give everybody the family they want? No, I don't think so. But God does promise that if you're lonely, if you're heartbroken, that you can come to him and he'll give you rest and he'll give you peace. Do you see how it's better, how Jesus offers spiritual solutions to physical problems? And of course we, we want physical solutions. Of course we do. But Jesus' kingdom operates on this transcendent level and it's better than anything that this world has to offer. Rome was the greatest empire. If Jesus was building a physical kingdom, he would have just wiped out Rome and set up his kingdom right then and there. And his followers would be the most successful, the wealthiest people in the world. But he didn't do that and we're not. Instead, he said, I'm building a spiritual kingdom that can never be destroyed. When Pilate says, look at my kingdom, Jesus says, yeah, that's cute. You should see mine. It transcends all of this. And it's not to say that God doesn't invade our physical world with his goodness. Of course he does. It's all around us. And we should talk to him about it. We should ask him for the things that we need physically, of course. But Jesus is building a kingdom that is beyond the limitations of this world, that is more powerful and more peaceful than anything that we could ever imagine. And he grants us access to his goodness for all of eternity starting now. So I guess what I'm saying is, is this. If Jesus is really this steady, on the one hand, if he's really this steady, and he's really this composed, and we pair that with, he has the authority over a kingdom that transcends this world. It transcends time and space and everything that we face. Man, I just think that should give us incredible joy and peace. So throw whatever you want at Jesus, I guess. Throw him your worst. All your chaotic thoughts, all your doubts, all your fears, all your anxieties, all your needs, all your complaints, because he can handle it. He never gets overwhelmed. He's never surprised. Give it to him. And if you'll trust him, watch as he gives you back joy and peace and rest. Would you pray with me? God, thank you 
that you are so steady. Thank you that you're never overwhelmed. God, I know for me, I'm overwhelmed enough for the both of us. Thank you that you're never stressed out, that you never scramble. You're always cool, you're always composed. Jesus, thank you that you didn't fight back. Thank you that you showed us how to be led by the Holy Spirit, to be gentle, to be self-controlled. Thank you that you didn't give in to the temptation to fight, but instead you ran to the cross. You ran to the tomb so that we could be forgiven of our sins and we could have hope and eternal life in your name. Thank you. God, help us to know that your steadfastness, your composure, it's real. It matters. Help us to know that when we're freaking out, we can come to you. And you go, I've got this. I'm not surprised. God, even right now, in this very moment, there are people watching online, there are people here on campus who are overwhelmed, stressed out by something maybe at work, surprised by something that's come up in their family, They've been knocked off their feet by a health scare. You're not surprised. God, we're, we're all overwhelmed by this pandemic that we've been in. You're not surprised. You haven't been scrambling. Help us to be confident in that and help us to know, God, that the solutions, the things that you give us, it's not merely physical, temporary solutions. You give us everlasting joy and peace, spiritual solutions that carry us, that are, that are enough for this life and the life to come, joy and rest and peace with God our Father. Thank you, Jesus, that you ran to the cross. You didn't let your pride get in the way. You didn't put up a fight. You went to the cross to lose your life so that we could find life in your name. Thank you that you walked out of the tomb, that we have hope in your name. We thank you for your goodness and we pray all these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.